Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. All right, so we are in a series um, called Hot Topics, week number two of it, and the kind of the subheading of it is it's conversations on controversy. Now, if you know me, I love offending people. No, I'm just kidding. I just love having conversations of importance, right? Conversations of magnitude. And um, so over the next handful of weeks, maybe six or seven, I haven't decided yet, um, we're going to be kind of going through some six or seven tough challenging concepts that non-Christians and Christians alike have some opinions on, right? And so we're doing this scientifically, philosophically, cosmologically. We're going to go through the lens of biology and a plethora of other things to kind of wrestle with some of the things we're talking about. And yes, even with a theological framework. Now, why? Why am I deciding to go through all these different lens, scientific, philosophical, cosmological, whatever it may be? Um, because I want people to come through this door that don't believe what I believe. That's why I do what I do. I don't just want to be in a, in a sycophantic e- echo chamber. That means in a group of people that are constantly saying what you say, believing what you believe, right? And so if I say something today or in weeks to come um, that, that you don't like, you disagree, it's come talk with me. The reason that we're not doing discussion groups and the reason that you're not um, uh, going to have a number that you can text on in is because a lot of the topics we're going to be talking about are highly personal. And I don't want me to be a, a pastor distant and dormant up on a stage. If you have some concerns about some of the stuff that we're talking about, like last week, last week I talked about abortion. That is, a, that is an emotionally charged issue. And uh, it's, got, it's got a spectrum of, of people that that believe on the pro-life side and the pro-choice side, especially what happened this last week with Roe versus Wade, right? And so um, I don't want people to like just text in answers or I want, I want them to come talk with me about this. And so if there's something that I talk about today or in weeks to come that you disagree with, hurts you or whatever it may be, I am open. And your questions are valid here. This is a place that you can ask them. We're not going to judge you for asking any questions. I'm, I'm even more excited if you don't believe what I believe that you're here. So welcome. All right. So we are, again, week number two of a series entitled Hot Topics. Now tonight I was going to... I was going to talk about homosexuality. Well, actually, let me kind of, let me pause really quick. Last week, last week, like I I said, I talked about abortion. I didn't even use the Bible till the end to talk about grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The reason being is, again, if you're not a believer, you don't believe in this book. You're not going, this is what I dictate my life of, right? However, um, if you didn't, weren't here because it was Father's Day and a plethora of other things, um, we have a podcast every Tuesday or maybe Monday. It's all, it's all the sermons that happen right here are uploaded on it. I think there's like 100 or plus people listen to it, which is pretty cool. Um, last week's sermon on abortion was there. And again, I just gave scientific and philosophical evidence of why I think that the pro-life arguments are better than the pro-choice arguments. And so uh, go listen to that if you weren't here. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about. Now today, I was going to talk about homosexuality. In fact, I spent 25 or 30 hours this week writing a sermon. I did write a sermon. I have an 11 and a half, almost 12-page sermon on homosexuality. However, this morning I woke up and uh, I had a question go through my mind. They, more of a statement, many people don't even understand God's design of sexuality, sex, or marriage, let alone what I believe to be a twisted uh, and perverted view of sexuality and marriage, i.e. gay marriage, right? And so next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend about 60% of our time together going through a biblical argument, and maybe 40 or maybe 30, 70 or 30% doing a sociological argument on, on gay marriage. But today, I'm going to talk to you about the theology of marriage, sex, and sexuality, right? Again, if there is a God, and borrow, go with me to this presupposition, 
That's an assertion of reality. If God does exist and he created sex, sexuality, and marriage, then therefore it should be most prudent and imperative for us to try to conform to his understanding of it. Tonight's message, I'll be upfront with you and pretty honest, it's mostly designed towards Christians. Now, next week, it's going to be more 50-50, right? But today, we are going to be using the Bible as a text and book to go through what marriage is all about. Now, tonight, like I said, I want to talk to you about sex, sexuality, the theology of marriage in itself. And about nine months ago, if you were here, I actually did a series that was called, I think, Uncensored or Shades of Grey. I don't know. They all blend, they all, they all, they all blend together um, uh, on, on this topic. And so some of the topics and illustrations are familiar to you. Um, that's because you've kind of already heard some of this stuff. There is tons of new material here tonight. Um, so if you're not, if you haven't, if weren't here nine months ago, then all this is going to be brand new um, to you. But I think that today's sermon is going to better set us up to talk about what we're talking about next week. So be here next week as well, all right? Because this sermon's going to set us up. Now, all in all, with next, next week's message and this week's message, I had 21 pages of notes, and that was going to take us two hours. So I thought, you know what I'm not going to do tonight? Do a two-hour sermon. So we're going to divide it, theology of marriage, then gay marriage next week. Next week. All right. So uh, before we kind of hop into uh, what we're talking about today, I want a question for you guys. Do you think, and it's a question for you to turn and discuss, do you think that you have a healthy model for marriage and sexuality? Do you think you have a healthy model for marriage and sexuality? Here's what I want you to look at. I want you to look, number one, at your past experiences, and number two, I want you to look at your parents' relationship. Because truth be told, you and I are going to be most prone to mimic the characteristics, whether better or worse, of the marriage that we saw or did not see our entire lives within mom and dad. And so do you think you have a healthy mar- a model of marriage and human sexuality? Yes or no? I'm going to give you a minute. Turn, discuss. Ready, set, go. All right, here's the next question I want you to turn and discuss. Um, would you like to have your parents' relationship in your future one? Right? You're like, yeah. <laughs> you're like, no, no, no. All right, so no, I'm going to give you a minute, turn and discuss, but talk about like, what you liked seeing about mom and dad's relationship and what you didn't like, right? Or maybe there wasn't one, and you're like, obviously, I, I don't want that for my future, right? Um, that, that would not be like the ideal, like, you know. Uh, and so turn and discuss, right? So like, what did you like about mom and dad's relationship? What didn't you like about mom and dad's relationship, all right? Um, uh, no gossip, though, you know what I'm saying? Like, it stays in the room, right? What happens in the warehouse stays in the warehouse, right? Uh, I'm going to give you a minute, turn and discuss, ready, say, go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. All right, just show of hands, and we've actually done this before. Raise your hand if you um, would not like to have the exact same relationship your mom and dad have. All right. All right, raise your hand if you would love to have the exact same relationship. All right, cool. Look how, look how drastically lower that is, right? Isn't that crazy? And so what this means is most of us, and this is like, I'm not a counselor, but I've spent many years in counseling myself, so I don't know if I speak with authority or I'm a jacked up person, either one. Um, uh, most people don't have a healthy model of, of what it looks like to, to be a good husband or be a good uh, wife. What, 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 like, other than spousal abuse, not much maybe is taught, and that's the truth, and statistics show that, right? And that's kind of a sad thing. But the other truth is that many people don't have a good model of what healthy sexuality looks like either, because we're using culture as kind of the lens that informs us of what healthy human sexual behavior is like. 
like. Let me give you a silly example. So have you ever been to a baseball game before? I went to my very first Angels baseball game. Like, I think I was like in sixth or fifth grade with my buddy Philip. Now, everyone's got that one friend that's like the diehard fan that like if their team loses, it, they, they, their day is just ruined, you know? And I'm like, I just don't understand. Anyways, all right, so uh, Philip is like diehard, you know, like paint face, you know, take your shirt off, scream like that, you know, that type of kid. I'm like, whoa, buddy, relax. And so I remember watching him um, uh, like kind of, Again, I've never, I never watched baseball. I didn't grow up going to games or whatever it is, right? And so watching him interact and looking at the crowd to see how I should act and when I should be excited and when I should be uh, uh, not excited, right? When I should yell, when I should be crying, whatever it is, right? And I surveyed the people that were in the audience. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't an Angels game. It was a Dodgers game. That was probably like the worst sports. You like the Dodgers? And I say, I don't know anything about anyone. So uh, if it's not UFC, I don't know anything about it. Um, I'm just honest. All right, and so uh, what we, I, I had to, like, figure out by looking at the audience how to behave and, and interact. In other words, there was something called a social script. I looked and surveyed that the people around me, and I went, okay, this is what is normal. You know, it's not normal if I took my pants off. That would not be normal right now, right? But some people have their shirts off. Some people are screaming. Some people are, like, like their beers, like, flying up, right? They're just, you know, and so certain things are normal. Certain things are not normal. And you can see what's normal, what's celebrated, um, what's acceptable by looking at the landscape that's around you. The same is true when it comes to human sexuality, whether it be educationally or just culture, what's happening on Netflix and Hulu and a plethora of other things. There's a script of sexuality that's being taught to us. We have to look at that and say, is this what is good, yes or no? And tonight, I want to kind of take a brief look at sexuality and see what Scripture has to say about marriage, sex, and again, sexuality, and the intention that God had when he created marriage, sex, and yes, human sexuality. Say, we're going to be studying a Greek word. The Greek word is eros. Now, if you know anything about the Greek language, there's five words for love, very way more specific than the English, English language, right? I've said before, I can love Oreos and my wife. You get the difference, but the syntax of the sentence is the same. But its inference is different. You understand that. Five Greek words of love. Today, we're going to be only talking about one Greek word of love. The word is eros. Now, eros is the romantic type of love. You remember like back when you were like in junior high and like that one girl or that one guy liked you? Yeah, me either. Um, I'm playing. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and like there's the butterflies in your stomach, you know, whatever it is, right? So that's kind of the idea of eros. It's kind of this romantic, emotionally charged type of love. Now, and it's what often people refer to as I'm in love or we're being in love, right? Now, each type of love actually has an end goal, weirdly enough. It has a purpose, an end goal. And the end goal of eros is simple. It's marriage. And yeah, part of marriage is what? Sex, sexuality. Now, the big question they're asking today is what does God expect? What does God expect from me in regards to sex, sexuality, and marriage? Again, here's the question. What does God expect from me in regards to sex, sexuality, and marriage? Now, I want to kind of pause. If you don't believe what I believe, Thank you for being here. You're welcome. You don't have to, um, like I said, I don't want us to be in echo chambers where people believe everything that we believe, right? It's important that um, we are confronted with views that are different from our own to either one, codify our views, or two, develop new ones and better ones, right? And so I'm going to present maybe some stuff today that you disagree with. That's totally fine, right? Now, maybe some things you would agree with are this. There is a cultural view and understanding of sex, sexuality, and marriage. It's pretty simple, and it's this. You get to decide and define. You get to decide and define. The cultural view is that marriage is a social convention. It's something, an institution that's man-made, and therefore, we can decide what marriage, sexuality, and sex is and what they're for. It's kind of like one day someone was like, you know what would be cool? If we made red lights meant that you stop, green lights that you go, and, that red, and yellow lights that you speed up, or whatever, right? Like, you know, like the whole like, stop sign thing, right? Someone had to come up with what those colors meant when you were driving, right? And that's a man-made thing. It wasn't like that existed out in the ether, that red meant stop, green means go, whatever it may be. 
Now, a while back, I was listening to a TED Talk, and the premise, which is interesting, it was a girl that was giving the, the, the TED Talk. It was on human sexuality, but specifically, the, the, I think the title of it was How We Made a Mistake with Marriage. And the subheading, some things are okay, though, dot, dot, dot. So I was like, I clicked onto it, like, hey, what could, this, what could this girl be advocating for, right? And I'm trying to figure out what could this mistake be. So it was like an hour-long TED Talk. I, I made my way through it, and she was saying and advocating that we keep marriage, however, that we should get rid of some things and keep other things, and the things that we should get rid of are things like monogamy, that all relationships should have a, um, a polygamous or polyamorous kind of uh, a function to them, that they should be open-ended, that people can sleep with whoever they want with however many partners that they want. And it was funny because, like, the, the camera, like, panned over to the audience, and, like, all the guys were, like, grinning, and all, like, the girls were, like, cocking back their arm to, like, slap their husband in the face. It was, it was just kind of funny to see, like, the, the, the dif- different dispositions between men and women given this very talk. Now, culture, obviously, I think we could agree here, has a differing perspective, right, than, uh, than Scripture does on sex, sexuality, and marriage itself. And the one central cultural purpose of marriage, I think, is really simple, and it's this, personal happiness and achievement, right? That's kind of like the whole purpose of marriage, sex, and sexuality, whatever makes you happy. And that actually kind of makes sense when you think about the worldview behind most people's lives, the way that they interpret and see the world around them. Most people interpret and see the world around them through the lens of the point of my life itself is to be happy, right? What can give me pleasure? For those of you guys that care about philosophy, this is called a hedonistic or epicureanism worldview. People that care about happiness, that's what the pursuit of my life is, is to be happy, to smile all of the time. And so when you start with that assumption that the whole totality of life itself is to be happy, it can make sense and it's easy to see, right, that um, how people think that sex, sexuality, and marriage itself is all about to be happy. Now, this is the reason I think divorce has been so rampant within the last 40 or 50 years, because there's actually been a change. Culturally, it's happened within the understanding of what marriage was supposed to be about. People say, I'm no longer happy in this marriage. So we, over the last 40 or 50 years, invented something called the no-fault divorce. And now, you can get out of a divorce easier than you can an AT&T contract, right? Or like a lease contract with Honda or something like that. It's like, boom, you sign one paper, peace out. It's pretty easy now, right? And there's lawyers that do all of this and a plethora of other things. Now, if, if marriage is all about your personal happiness, then the reason you should be able to leave is if they make you not happy, right? Also, you should be allowed to marry anyone you want as long as they make you happy, okay? But what if, what if marriage, sex, and sexuality aren't social conventions but given to human beings as gifts from God? And therefore, they're designed to be used in very specific operating parameters. Again, I've given you the silly uh, junior high example years ago, right, where my dad was making tacos, and he was using something called a pet egg. My, he thought that the, 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 my mom bought him a new cheese grater, and the cheese grater was to grate the dead calloused off your feet, right? And so he's like grating a block of cheddar cheese with that, thinking that's the cheese grater. That's not what it's designed for. It's got a foot on it. I don't know how he thought. Anyways, right? Things have certain operating parameters, and if we use and abuse them, consequences happen. Now, if, here's a premise, if, God is the author, sustainer of life itself, and he has certain parameters of how you and I are supposed to live, if we operate outside of those parameters, you're not going to get life and life abundantly. You're going to get some type of death. We're going to talk about that in in a moment. Now, um, culture says that, that marriage, sex, and sexuality is for us to decide, but rather I think we are supposed to discover these things because God had already created them. And so it's like an archaeological dig. We are to discover what God's definition, understanding, intent, and reason for creating sex, sexuality, and yes, even marriage itself. We're to discover God's purposes and definitions for it, right? 
And so if you look at the very first chapter, in fact, go with me to Genesis chapter 1 if you have a Bible, uh, Genesis chapters 1. And if you go with me to Genesis chapters 1, you're going to see that God created the known universe. As he spoke it into existence, all things came into existence, right? We have the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the water, clouds, the hydrological system, all of it in a moment's notice came into existence and God spoke it into existence. And then you're going to notice with me as you read Genesis chapters 1 and even 2, it says, after God created everything, it says, God said and it's singular there. It says, God said it was good. God said it's singular. But then when it comes to the creation of man, something interesting happens. The narrative changes here. Follow with me, Genesis 1, and we're going to hop down to verse 26. It says this, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So he goes here, right, from creating everything out of the singular. But when he creates humans, track with me here, God's plurality comes out. You're like, what, what does that mean? Like, time out. Well, the orthodox, that means the right way of viewing God himself as he's revealed himself in Scripture, is something called the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't have time to uncover all of what that means today. That's a whole new, that's 12 more pages on something else. Um, but God exists within something called a Trinitarian nature, which means this, and this is pivotal. It means that God has always and forever existed in relationships. See, in other religions and other philosophies and other worldviews, relationships come later. But for the God of Christianity, relationships are preeminent. They are first and foremost because God has always been three persons in one being existing within a relationship with the members of the Trinity forever and ever and ever and ever. And therefore, because you and I are made in God's image, when God said, let's make man our image, what it didn't mean is that he was going to give, that God has a beard and that God's 5'9 and the, whatever, that's not what it means. Rather, it means a plethora of other things, but one of the things it means is that when we are created in God's image is that we are relational contingent beings, like God himself is. We are meant to be in relationships. That's prudent and important for the next verse we're going to go. Hop into Genesis 2, verse 18 with me. That's one page, hopefully, for you. It says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be, and if you have your Bibles, highlight alone. I will make a helper, and this is the most important word, suitable for him. That's, we're, we're going to be talking about that a lot next week. Up until this point, though, all of what God has created was seen as good, except man. God's like looking at the you know, shellfish and a plethora, good, 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 good. Looking at like weird animals like octopuses, good, 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 a bunch of things like that. And he comes to man, he's like, er, not good. Now, did God mess up? I know some of you ladies think he did, but he didn't, right? Uh, it's not that he messed up on making man, it's that he wasn't done yet. He had something better for man that was different than every other type of animal that was out there. And so God surveyed the natural world, looked at rhinos and elephants and turtles and a bunch of other things, said none of them are suitable helpers for man. None of them. It wasn't done yet. And so his, his solution was, we find in Genesis 2, uh, 20 through 22, it says this, for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's rib and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out a man and brought her to the man. Now, God's solution to finding Adam a suitable helper, which means partner, was to create Eve. Now, this is important you understand this. She is equal in every single sense of the way in terms of value and worth. For those of you guys that care about philosophy again, ontological worth and essence, equal, 100%. Now, over the years, this has been taught incorrectly within, with antiquity, where like men were seen as more valuable and human-like than, than women. That's, not, that, that's never the case. From the moment that God created man and women, they were created equally, 100%. And notice with me that God created mankind from the dust of the earth, but created woman from already another human being. I heard a, I heard a poem that says this, Women were created from the rib of men to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. And all the girls went, aw. No, fine. 
<laughs> Some of the guys, weird. Uh, no, but here's what you need to know, right? Eve, Eve was an image bearer of God like Adam, giving her the very same intrinsic value and worth and status as him, and that makes her the very same kind of being that Adam is, a human being, a person, but yet different. She is biologically, anatomically different. She is emotionally different. She is spiritually different than Adam is, than man. See, God, this is, this is pivotal. God did not create a mirror image of Adam rather a complementarian one of him, and did so for numerous of reasons. The first, they are designed that way in order to pro- procreate. Think of this, every single biological function, uh, breathing, digesting, blood circulation, all of them can be done individually. The one biological process that cannot be done individually that needs a biologically different person is procreation. Could God not be teaching, designing, and showing us something there and there alone. They're also designed that way in order to help shape one another, and they're designed that way in order to reflect different characteristics of God himself. See, men and women are very different, and, and they're distinctly different. And we're in a, one of these weeks I'm going to talk about gender dysphoria. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But men and women are different. I think in week four I'm talking about gender. So not next week. Not the week after that, but the week after that, I'm talking about gender dysphoria, so be here for that. My sermon's entitled, Jesus Speaks with Jenner. It's going to be fire. All right, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, Caitlyn Jenner, obviously, if you guys didn't get that. Uh, doesn't care about any other genders. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, so men and women, right, they're distinctly biologically, socially, uh, uh, they're, they're different, right? And, I mean, you can just look at how, like, men and women parent differently. So, for example, right, so I have a, almost a five-month-old now, and uh, Chelsea and I, are very different on how we love and how we parent. You can catch me like any night of the week, like with, like with my, so for example, I have, I have a daughter named Noelle, I have another Corgi, uh, her name, a daughter as well, I guess, a uh, little dog, her name is uh, uh, Zara, right? And every night of the week, you can catch me with Zara, like with her bone, like swinging her around the house, right? And then like with Noelle, I'll throw her super high up in the air and like my wife is like freaking out or like always like scare her and pop out of corners or whatever it is, right? She thinks it's funny, but my wife doesn't. <laughs> and so like, we, we parent very differently. On any other night of the week, you can, you can see Chelsea with both Noel and Zara, like, painting their nails, like, petting them, like, you're both beautiful, you know, like, whatever it is, like, regardless of what the other people and dogs say, whatever, right? So it's like, the way we parent, the way that we love is intrinsically different. We are separate in, 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 that, in that, that alone. Now, our culture, right, would have you believe that men and women are the same, even though all throughout human history, mankind has understood that gender is not a socially constructed idea, that it's tethered and connected to biology. Now, do men and women like pink and blue? Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about different differences, and I'll, I'll talk about that in week four or five of this series. Now, Scripture says that we are both made in God's image. Both genders, sexes in some sense, are, are reflective of the aspects of the Trinity of the Godhead. We're going to talk about that again in weeks to come. But like the Trinity, members, members uh, uh, even biological sexes that are different, have different functions and roles, but yet are equal in essence. Now, the same is true with male and female relations. Both are created equally in God's image, but created to play very distinctive on very different roles. Now, all of this sets the backdrop and framework for us to understand and digest appropriately a biblical understanding of sex. And so with that, go to the next verse with me. Genesis 2, 24 says this. This is why, and I need you to see the continual pattern here. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, so there's already a household There's already a family, and the members of that family are a mother and a father, a husband and a wife, and is united to his wife. 
and they become, and here's the word we're going to be spending most of the time today, one flesh. And I've talked to you about this word before. It's a pivotal and important word because the Hebrew word here means sex, and the word is akkad. Akkad means fused together in the deepest parts, becoming one entity before God, fused together at the deepest levels of what it means to be a human being. Now, I've talked to you about this biologically and even neurologically before. I've told you about chemicals that are produced in your brain through the process of sex, vasopressin and oxytocin. They're the love-bonding chemicals. They make you chemically dependent upon another human being. That's one of the problems with pornography. It's why it becomes highly addictive. These chemicals are produced in your brain, addicting you chemically like one is addicted to heroin to this activity. By the way, this is also one of the reasons that people that are in relationships that you look at, you, you should get out of those that the girl or the guy feel like they need to be in them and they need that person because what's happening at a chemical level in their brain is they're becoming chemically dependent upon the person as they're actively having sex with that person. We'll talk about all that maybe in, in uh, moments to come, but the idea here of a cod is really important. And because the biblical idea is they're not just one emotionally, they are now one entity spiritually. And in these moments, Scripture says that they are now one entity before God. Now, to really understand, though, God's view of sex, we kind of have to pause, though, and step back. Sure, there's the, neuro, there's the neurochemical part of sex and a plethora of other things, but we kind of have to pause back because in Scripture, marriage is called a covenant. Like, what does that old churchy term mean? If you were at main campus or senior pastor Doyle talked about covenants and covenant type of relationships this last uh, Saturday and Sunday. However, um, I'm, let me teach you a little bit uh, more about what a covenant is. A covenant can be interchangeable with the word contract or promise or deep commitment, but a covenant is interesting because you'll often see in the Old Testament, and yes, in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that God engages and interacts with people through a covenant lens. And he's making covenants with different people or groups of people, but the main idea of a covenant is this. God's entering into a personal relationship with somebody or a group of people like all of Israel and the Jews, where he reveals himself to them, and they make a promise to one another to be faithful to each other. That is the idea of what a covenant is. Now, number one, it is far more intimate and loving than a legal relationship. But number two, it's also far more binding and enduring than a purely emotional relationship. Here's why. God knows that it takes more than just human emotion to stay committed to a relationship oftentimes. It requires a legal binding infrastructure as that contract. Make it this way. It is far more easy for you to feel safe, vulnerable with somebody who has promised to be exclusively faithful to you till death do you part than someone who has no obligation and can leave whenever they want. This is one of the reasons I'm so against cohabitation. And I'll talk about that in a second. So God creates things called covenants to show two things. Number one, a legal, and number two, an intimate commitment. That's what a covenant was designed to show us. Now, this exclusive relationship of one man and one woman in a marriage for one lifetime is, scriptures is best described as what I told you earlier, a covenantal relationship. You're taking notes, covenantal relationships. This is a relationship where your needs are more important than my needs. And then sex just becomes a way to express the beautiful commitment uh, that you've made to be with each other till, till death do you part and then to enjoy one another. Now, to contrast that with the modern operating condition or modern operating model of what married sex and sexuality is all about is a consumer relationship. So we have a covenantal relationship, and then we have the modern one that most young adults believe is a consumer relationship. This relationship is all about my, my needs, my fulfillment, and my happiness. And then sex is simply a natural desire. It's a biological need for me to experience instant gratification and sexual gratification right now. Now, here's the point. I've heard people say that, like, sex is just a natural desire. And as long as I'm safe and smart about it, it's all good. But here's the truth. It isn't good. There are two different kind of different types of relationships and worldviews have drastically different results, the covenantal one and the consumer one. Let me just give you two. The first is security. Consumer relationships are always 
you always have to perform or they will leave. Better make them happy, better look good, better do this, better do that, better impress them or whatever it is. You're constantly kind of selling yourself. It's exhausting. But in a covenantal relationship, you can kind of finally be yourself. You can feel safe, let your guard down, and you can stop selling yourself. Number two is freedom. Consumer relationships are dependent upon how I feel day to day, right? If I don't feel good about this relationship, I leave this relationship. You become a slave to your feelings and their feelings. If you want to be free from fleeting feelings, then make a promise that you will be in a relationship despite your fluctuating feelings till death do you part, the roller coaster of your feelings. See, the biblical view of sex is something that I think is so much more life-giving because it views sex as giving you my body as a token of me already giving you my whole life. Sex is simply a biblical view of it as me giving you my body as a token of me already giving you my entire and whole life. In simple, it's a whole life disclosure with that other person. And sex is the action that just demonstrates that I've already given you my entire life in totality. In some sense, the way it's like, I have, I have made myself vulnerable to you in every single way, financially, relationally. Our, we are legally connected to each other. Everything about our lives is now intertwined. And so sex is me just basically saying, I am physically opening up myself to you as a sign of what we've already done with the totality of our entire life. That's very different than the way consumer sex is talked about and its problems with it. Now, I've other heard people say things like, well, okay, well, sex is like okay if you really love them, right? And I just want to tell them like, I just think that is a super selfish view of sex. It's selfish because you're unwilling to give your full life to them. You just want physical pleasure from them. For example, like, I've known tons of people, right, that um, are living with their boyfriends and girlfriends. And normally what comes with that is sleeping with each other because that would be interesting if you could live with each other but not sleep with each other, right? And so, and then I've heard things like in counseling, like, the girls say, like, I just wonder why he's not proposing. I just wonder why he's not it's like, because you're, you're already giving them all of the things that a marriage would give somebody. Why would he? Men are selfish. Ingrained within us because of testosterone and a plethora of other neurochemicals is to view sex differently than women. It is. This is the reason that normally a guy can go around sleeping with women, a plethora of them, and a girl can, and they're affected differently. Guys will often talk about their sexual adventures like a conquest. I've slept with X amount of women. In fact, in high school, I knew some guys that, like, before they graduated, tried to sleep with 20 or 30 girls or whatever it was. I don't ever hear women do the same thing. Like, my goal is to sleep with 30 guys. It's not the way that... See, women view sex through the lens of connection, being drawing someone together. That's not how guys view it. Guys have more of a testosterone-filled perspective on it. It's more through the lens of conquest, to be honest with you. It validates them or whatever it may be. So the reason, one of the reasons I'm against cohabitation, if you really care about this and you want to know, learn more about it, there's a book by a guy named Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. The thing, first two, three, and one, two, and three chapters, one, three, three, one, three, four, one of them, are all about cohabitation. He does not even biblical, but sociological studies on why cohabitation doesn't work and why sex outside of marriage is harmful. But anyways, so I think it's selfish, right? Because you're unwilling to give your full life to them and you just want the physical pleasure from them. And this idea you are taking, you are not giving. You are not willing to be fully committed to them. You want sexual satisfaction without giving your whole life to them. And I think that is a selfish and self-centered view of sexuality. Sex here merely becomes a way you feel good about yourself. It makes people feel wanted, loved, adored, uh, secured, powerful, prideful. It's selfish. It's about you. In fact, did you know that vast majority of sociological studies show that a lot of people that are in relationships that are sexually active are only continuing to be sexually active because they feel if they were to stop having sex, the relationship would end. Man, if you were only in a relationship because you're continuing to have sex with that person, that is a weak, 
fragile relationship, and God wants something better for you. That's not a life-giving relationship in any sense of the way. Whenever I do couple counseling, um, so know if you ask me, this is going to be the first question I ask you, so prep yourself for it. Um, they sit in my office, and the very first thing I say is, hey, are you guys sleeping together? And then they normally look at each other like, ah, uh, can we leave now? And I lock the door, and I'm playing, um, I'm playing. And, and most couples say, yeah. And I go, okay, you guys need to stop, and we'll discuss all of your problems our next meeting. We'll meet in two weeks. For the next two weeks, I don't want, I don't want you guys to sleep with each other. Two weeks. And, and if you're in a relationship that's sexually active right now, I want to encourage you for the next two weeks not to sleep with each other. And just see how much more challenging your relationship gets. See, the way that God designed sex is it creates kind of like, one, a connection, a commitment, but two, it enters into a, it brings like a fog almost into the relationship. And the problem with people that have sex too early on in their relationship is they don't actually get to see the person for who they really are because they're chemically connected to them. They are not emotionally, they are not relationally connected to them. They make themselves chemically dependent upon a person before they actually get to know the person. And that's a huge problem with that. And so they never learn how to handle conflict or whatever it was. And so they never learned how to actually develop healthy relationships. All they learned through the pattern of what junior high, high school, and college taught them as they were in sexual relationships in and out of them is how to have sex, not how to actually have a wholesome, healthy relationship that betters the individuals that are part of it. That's a problem. That's a model that needs to be changed, a script of sexuality that's unhealthy that leads to divorce. That's why most people, not most people, an overwhelming percent of marriages end in divorce, an unhealthy model of marriage, sex, and sexuality. So... Whenever I do couples counseling, right, I ask them, um, are you guys sleeping with each other? And they say, yeah, and if they're two weeks, I don't want you guys to sleep with each other. The next meeting in two weeks' time, they have a whole new relationship. Most people, I'll be honest with you, they don't make it because they no longer have sex covering up how bad their relationship really is. Now, here is the eth ethic of sex in the Bible. So if you're taking notes, here's what it is. You must not do with your body what you were not willing to do with your whole life. You must not do with your body what you were unwilling or not willing to do with your whole life. Now, I tell you all this because when we use something in opposition to the way that God designed it, something always dies. Like I told you earlier, if God is the sustainer and author of life, we do something that's outside of the operating parameters of something that God has designed, outside of God's will, you will experience some type of death, relational, financial, some spiritual, some type of death. I can promise you that. Because again, if God is the author and sustainer of life, in violation of anything that he has prescribed, you will not experience a life and life abundantly that he wants for you. That's, just, that's a quick little logical argument there. Now, the truth is a misused gift from God always leads to some type of death. And here's what this means. The more and more that we abuse sex, I'll say, the more and more that we abuse sex and we operate it outside of God's parameters, the less healing power that it has and the less sticking power it has to join two people together. Now, I have, uh, I've given this illustration before and I often give it to uh, students. And if you've been around here for a while, you've heard it. I say that sex is sticky. And what I mean by that is that it's like duct tape. And duct tape, if you put two pieces of duct tape together, it's kind of pretty stuck. But if you try to attempt to pull them apart, which you can, but it's going to take a long time, two things happen. Number one, both of the pieces of duct tape are damaged. Number two, it, the adhesiveness loses its power to stick again. Now, with God's restoration and all that, he, he can, he can uh, renew and restore all of it, right? But then you're going to go to this person and pull it off and this person and pull it off. And the truth is, Two things happen. Again, it loses its ability to adhere, and number two, it also has, it carries a piece with every person that you've ever sticked that piece of duct tape to. Did you know, biologically speaking, every bug just flew my eye. Uh, every person that a person has ever had sex with, biologically speaking, a part of them is with you. In modern germ theory, it's proven that the, whether it be bacteria or something else, that every single person that one person has slept with, 
scientists could technically tell if they could grab some of the DNA from all these other individuals, uh, uh, parts of those germs. That's kind of crazy to think about, right? So the idea of it loses its sticking power is important because God designed this to be a cohesive uh, 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 bonding experience. And if someone is continuing to have sex with a bunch of people, it loses its ability to bond, to join two human beings together. Now, some of you here today are like, all right, what does this all mean for me, especially, right, because I've already had sex outside of marriage? So your question is, now what? In fact, 97% of the people in this room, in fact, raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. Uh, okay. But in fact, 97% of the people that are in this room, right, have had sex outside of marriage. So like, well, are you hopeless? Is it, is, is it just, I'm screwed? Like, like what, what do I do from here? And the answer is no, of course not, right? And so if you are sexually active and you are a Christian, this is probably a message for Christians, if you are sexually active and you are a Christian, you're crossing boundaries that you never thought you would cross, right, or you're addicted to pornography, my encouragement for you is to stop. You cannot continue to walk in disobedience and expect to run into life or the life that God has for you in the future. I've said it before. You cannot walk in disobedience and expect to walk into God's blessing in the future if you're sexually active or whatever it is, right? And so let me tell you what Jesus has to say about this, the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. He says this, pretty intense stuff. He's talking about lust and sexual immoral activity in this passage. He says this, he said, if your eye causes you to, st- or causes you to stumble, lust, gouge it out. <laughs> so like, do we have spoons in the back? That's not, that's, not, that's not what it means. It's not a literal translation. What it means is be active, be serious about doing everything you possibly can to rid your life from sexual immorality because it is destroying you from the inside out. So two things. Number one, maybe for you, you are addicted to pornography. 90% of the men in this room probably actively watch it. The stats on pornography are incredible. How overwhelming this next generation, millennials and Gen Z, are addicted to it. 60% of women are now watching pornography. Um, That's up from 40% from just a few years ago. That's crazy to think about this type of stuff, right? And so maybe for you, you are, you are addicted to pornography. You need to either set boundaries. You need to confess that it's, it's a sin of yours, that it's an addiction of yours. And you need to talk to some people about it. So maybe you need to uh, throw your computer out. Maybe you need to not have it in your room, whatever it may be. Maybe for you, you just, you just know you're never going to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. So what you need to do if you are a Christian and you want to be in a relationship that's God-honoring so God can bless your relationship is maybe, maybe you maybe need to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend. God cares more about your holiness than anything else, and you should too. And then you need to maybe ask God for strength daily. God, this is something I really struggle with. Again, a majority of the people in this room aren't virgins, right? And so maybe there's something is you struggle with. You're going to need God's help in this. You're going to need a church help with this. And then the next thing you need to do is, number one, you need to confess that this is your sin, and then you need to turn from them and ask God for forgiveness. Last thing I'll say before I, I, I close in prayer is this. Jesus didn't just die on the cross so you could walk around beating yourself up over your sins, Right? That's like, I told you this last week, that 2,000 years ago, he didn't just nail your sin to the cross, he also nailed your shame and your guilt too. And so an overwhelming percent of us and people that go to church did not save sex till marriage. Comma, that's okay if you're asking God for forgiveness and he brings restoration and wholeness into your life, which he promises to do. Over and over and over in scripture, Paul calls us a new creation, a new, you are made new in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that your sin and my sin is thrown as far as from the east as from the west or from the, the deepest trenches in the entire ocean. God doesn't look at you through the lens of sin before if you were found in his son. And so when you start feeling guilty of something you've done, I need you to know that Jesus has already forgiven you for that, and you don't need to beat yourself up over that. Let me pray for you guys, and then, um, yeah, be here next week. Next week, 
a super intense talk, homosexuality, and it's, uh, this was kind of the bedrock to help set us up for what's happening next week, and so next week is going to be um, an interesting conversation. If you have any questions of anything I said today, please come up and talk with me, and then uh, I think we'll leave maybe in like 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, to Raising Cane's if you guys want to come. Let me pray for us. God, today we are thankful. I'm thankful, God, that you are a God that is good. You have created sex, sexuality, and marriage, and you created those things that be good, and because you are a good God and the author of life, as we subscribe and conform, God, to your prescriptions and definitions of things, we'll experience life and life abundantly. However, when we deviate from the intended purpose of something, God, that you have created, it becomes a curse or we're experiencing some type of death. So, Father, I ask, God, that you give us the strength to conform, God, not to the patterns of this world, um, but, God, to the definitions, to the, the pattern of life, God, that you want us to live. And so, Father, would you continue to move us forward in faith? We love you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, guys, well, thank you guys for being here. If you have any questions, and I'll be up here. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.